this week on the Back Table Podcast. But uh, there's another group of patients where they say, yeah, it's not so great. The flow is still kind of weak. Well, uh, that's probably the bladder muscle and the patient didn't have invasive urodynamics, so you don't know how good the bladder muscle is. So what do doctors do? They give an alpha blocker. Now, that's the limit for me. If I trim out the prostate and the bladder neck, why should I think that uh, alpha adrenergic receptor blockade of the smooth muscle at the bladder neck plays any role? I don't. And since we know the alpha blocker treatment doesn't affect the detrusor muscle, and we have essentially no treatment that affects the detrusor muscle, I draw the line. I tell the patient, look, it's just a waste of money and time and effort, and it's just make-believe. An alpha blocker can't have a meaningful role after a well-executed TURP or KTP or whole lab or aquablation. So there's no such thing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. I'm your host, Aditya Bagrodia, and today we have Dr. Klaus Rohrberm, the professor and chairman at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Klaus is a thought leader in the management of lower urinary tract symptoms and uh, benign prosthetic hyperplasia. We're very happy to have him. Last time we focused on medical management and evaluation of lower urinary tract symptoms, and today we'll try to keep our focus on surgical management. So Klaus, welcome back. How are you doing today? Good. Doing very well. Fantastic. So perhaps Klaus, I'll just uh, ask you to give a very brief recap of our last conversation and, you know, kind of the final thoughts as we move towards exploring surgical options for patients. We talked about the evaluation of the typical patient presenting with symptoms, the assessment with a symptom score uh, that gives us an idea of the severity of the symptom frequency and uh, so forth. Then talked about how it affects the quality of life and the patient's, you know, social activities and so forth. That plays a major role in the indication for treatment. Then um, we talked about the uh, optional evaluation tools such as urinary flow rate, residual urine, assessment of the prostate by DRE or by imaging, and how that would help us uh, to uh, get an understanding of the patient's phenotype, if you will. Talked about medical therapy and how it's differentiated between alpha blockers and 5-ARIs, PDE5 inhibitors alone or in combination together with anticholinergics, and sort of ended up with um, what I think currently is a fairly differentiated approach to the medical management of BPH to the point that that is effective. But I want to just uh, begin this episode by stating that all medical management of BPH is effective in at most 70% of patients. And that's a very important thing to keep in mind. All the studies show that a meaningful improvement in the symptom score is only achieved in 70% of patients. We forget this often. We think this is it. Here's a pill, take it, it will work. No, not. It works in 70%. So there is right off the bat 30% of patients, even with the best intentions, who don't respond and then, of course, there is patients who have side effects from medication, patients who are tired of medication, patients with poor compliance and just don't respond as well. And those patients then also need to switch over to some other therapy. So I would say uh, it's far more than 30% of patients started on medication therapy that eventually fail and need to consider other treatment alternatives. Yeah, that's incredibly helpful. And I think just like when we talk about prostate cancer patients and active surveillance coming out and, and giving them the expectation that this isn't a one-stop shop necessarily, that some proportion will progress and require further intervention is important. 
Okay, fantastic. So last time we talked about absolute indications for an outlet procedure, we talked about maximal medical management and a failure to have an acceptable quality of life. And essentially we've, let's just say we've made a decision that we're going to be proceeding with surgery. So, you know, even over the course of my career, there's been an absolute explosion in terms of options that are available for patients. And as we start talking about the relevant patient characteristics, symptom characteristics, and anatomical considerations, perhaps it would be useful, Klaus, if you could just give perhaps a comprehensive list of options that are available as you see it. Uh, happy to do it. And in fact, that list is ever expanding. I just came off our first virtual meeting of a new society, the Society of Benign Prostate Diseases. Uh, this was just formed last year during the COVID pandemic. We had our first virtual meeting, and in fact, we discussed just about all of these treatments and had presentations on them. So those treatments nowadays are grouped into uh, minimally invasive that are done as an outpatient or an ambulatory surgery center versus the surgeries that require full anesthesia that are done in a hospital setting usually and require more or less an overnight stay. Of course, this is also dependent on health systems. Everybody stays more than one night in European countries and most people can go home in, in the United States, et cetera. So it's, a, it's driven by health systems as well. So th that's just one group of uh, way of grouping it. You can also group these treatments by, do they remove tissue or do they not remove tissue? I'll give you an example, a TERP classically removes tissue. It's an ablative procedure and it's invasive and it requires hospitalization at least for a day. Uh, Non-ablative would be a Eurolift. You place the Eurolift devices and you push the tissue to the side, but no tissue is ultimately removed. So ablative versus non-ablative is another way of differentiating it. There would be a differentiating uh, between treatments that consist of permanent placement of items such as a Eurolift. And there's a whole slew coming down the pipe the Zenflow device, the Butterfly device, the Medion device, all of which are experiencing trials in the United States right now and may, may or may not be approved by the FDA versus treatments that don't use devices that are implanted permanently. And then there's a categorization by devices that work by laser energy versus electrocautery energy versus other energies. For example, the Resume procedure uses steam, just hot water or water heated uh, by radio frequency energy and then inject it. And as the steam gives off the energy, it destroys the tissue. So the energy source is another uh, question. And to add to that, there is the aquablation treatment that doesn't use any heat per se, neither electrical uh, generated heat nor laser generated heat, uh, nor steam, but it uses uh, basically saline at room temperature uh, with a very intense water pick system uh, to destroy prostate tissue. So you can already see that it's how complex it is, how you can group these treatments by energy source, uh, by ablative or non-ablative, by implant versus non-implant. Then comes the question, uh, are these treatments all suitable for all sizes and shapes? And this is something we should probably discuss. But if you look through the list, so minimally invasive devices currently approved and recommended in the United States would be the Eurolift device, which is an implant. Um, and the resume treatment, which is a steam-based heat treatment that partially ablates tissue. Then amongst the surgical treatments, there would be monopolar, bipolar, TURP, the PVP, the green light or KTP or 532 nanometer laser ablation of the prostate. Then there would be a host of enucleative techniques. And as you know, enucleation now can be done with the traditional way, the holium laser enucleation, which is called HOLEP, the thulium laser, which is called THULEP. 
but people do it with uh, basically the green light laser as well. And it's called a KTP laser, enucleation, or even do it with a bipolar resectoscope device and just get into the enucleation plane. Then we have the treatments for the very large prostates that go beyond, beyond the whole lab or through lab. Uh, the robotic or open or robotic-assisted laparoscopic uh, enucleation of the prostate as alternatives for the very large prostates. So the guidelines still recognize the old-style microwave treatment, transuresal microwave therapy, TUMT, people will know it as such. But the consensus is that this is not as effective. It's very time-consuming. It takes an hour, which is quite long, and the retreatment rates are high. So I would like to not focus too much on that because I don't think that's really a mainstream treatment any longer. And lastly, we should spend a minute or two on prosthetic arterial embolization. This is something we don't do as urologists, but it is done. And it is done by interventional radiologists. And at least we all need to be knowledgeable of what it does and what it can and cannot do. And the AUA position currently is to say that it should be, it should require further evaluation before it would be recommended as a treatment. So that's sort of a rundown of both the groupings and the treatments that exist themselves. Yeah. And I think it's safe to say that, you know, the options are plentiful and ever expanding. You know, simplistically, I think of these also as transurethral options versus either uh, trans uh, peritoneal, such as a robotic simple prostatectomy or retropubic options, such as um, open simple prostatectomy which I think is a operation that's becoming less and less common here. So fantastic. You know, thanks, thanks for kind of running through those. You know, again, I think uh, categorizing these as, you know, traditional surgeries versus transurethral options is, is something to consider. Now we'll try to actually, you know, jump into patient characteristics, prostate anatomy characteristics that um, help guide a decision. So maybe we start out with, you know, comorbidities, elderly patients, and thoughts on patients that are blood thinners, does that immediately kind of start impacting your decision tree here? So the age of the patient per se, the, the chronological age, actually the least, I would say. And I, you know, you, you are an oncology surgeon, you know, you operate on elderly folks, you operate on octogenarian if they have cancer. So we have to take a step back or we have to say, this is a benign disease, it's a quality of life disease. We cannot afford an anesthetic event here. So clearly we're going to dial it down a little bit. If the patient is elderly and is frail, uh, frailty is a, plays a big role in the BPH population, uh, then we'll take it down a notch and we offer treatments that are less invasive and we try to just offer those treatments which we consider minimally invasive, the resume treatment or the Eurolift treatment if the size of the prostate allows it. Uh, clearly, if the prostate is too large or if there is a substantial intravesical lobe, uh, if we're choosing an, an, an endoscopic operation, I would choose the KTP laser. Why? Because there's clearly less bleeding and the chances, even small, for a return to the emergency room with clot retention is higher with a TERP compared to a KTP. That's just a fact. You know, Even if it's only 2% or 3% versus 0.5%, but it's a difference for a person in his 80s. If it has to be a TERP, then I would say, of course, a bipolar TERP because the use of saline reduces the risk of hyponatremia, TURP syndrome, and all of this will benefit our elderly patient population. The use of blood thinners is uh, complicated because it's not only platelet, uh, antiplatelet agents. 
which are easier to manage and easier to uh, treat patients under. But the true anticoagulation, which used to be all patients on Coumadin, and now it's basically on modern anticoagulation, be it uh, Plavix or be it Eliquis, that's a far more complex issue. I used to say that a patient on Coumadin uh, would take him to the OR and do a green light laser ablation up to an INR of 1.5, but there are almost no patients on Coumadin any longer. They are on Eliquis and they are on Plavix and other such drugs, and you don't have that graduation anymore. So those patients are difficult to treat. Now, some of the treatments can be done. Uh, there is here and there a person who publishes a series of patients on Eliquis treated with even a whole lab, but that's rare. I would say if the patient can't come off the blood thinners, the true anticoagulation, I would say the KTP laser is probably as far as I would take it in the range of ablative treatments. I would certainly do a urolift placement uh, on a patient on anticoagulation and have done so on any kind of anticoagulation because the application of that lift device uh, two or four or six times doesn't cause a great risk of bleeding. What about um, adding on uh, five alpha reductase inhibitors prior to BPH surgery? Do you have any opinions on that to mitigate bleeding risk? Sure. These are not uh, t necessarily tied to each other. So um, when patients are on anticoagulation, true anticoagulation, it's a different question if they're on platelet uh, aggregation inhibitors. Uh, many treatments can be done under aspirin, certainly if it's uh, 81 milligram. You now ask a different question. You ask a question, what if I have an elderly patient and I don't want to have a major blood loss and I want to avoid getting into a venous sinus and bleeding and so forth and so on? What is the role of 5-ARIs? Well, as you know, they were developed to treat BPH and lower the PSA and shrink the prostate by 25%, which they do. But there is an incredible uh, side effect to it that people don't realize. And it was shown by Dr. Fowler in the United Kingdom many decades ago. They actually inhibit to su uh, suppress the expression of a vascular endothelial growth factor in the subepithelial tissue of the prostate. And by doing that, fairly quickly reduce the prostate-related bleeding. The first observations was that patients who had, quote, prostate bleeding, right? We've seen these people they have hematuria, intermittent growth, no clots or plus or minus clots. You can't find a reason for it. You look in, you see these large vessels over the surface of the prostate, and those patients are considered to have BPH-related bleeding. Well, the observation was that 5-ARIs work very well. The recurrence rate of bleeding from the prostate in these patients goes down from 30 to 60% to 10, 20% at the most. So it's a very effective treatment. Then people said, well, if that's the case, why don't we give it prior to a surgery? And that was sort of the limit of it because here we're talking about large vessels that bleed, venous sinuses during the TURP, and the efficacy of 5-ARIs to reduce bleeding intra-op is not significant either statistically or clinically. Why would I say that? I say that because the largest meta-analyses done in this field show that by estimation of the surgeon, there is a reduction in blood loss but there is not a reduction in transfusion risk. And there is not even a reduction in the patients who come down to a hematocrit or hemoglobin that is precariously close to requiring a transfusion. So if you look at it from a tangible benefit point of view, you want to avoid transfusion or having a patient so low that he is weakened and in his recovery somehow impaired. And that is not affected by the use of 5-ARIs. And there's about five or six uh, randomized placebo-controlled trials that show that. I personally don't do it. 
It also delays the surgery by three to six months, depending on how long you do the treatment, and the benefit is minimal. Okay, okay. Well, that's uh, that's valuable insight. So as we start talking about the various components that play into the decision-making tree here, my sense is that the prostate size is going to be kind of the first major fork in the road, if you will. So yeah. perhaps we just have you start out talking about, you know, what your kind of preferred imaging modality would be. Yeah. And even maybe also when you consider cystoscopy prior to uh, BPH management in a, in a kind of garden variety patient. So by way of uh, uh, declaring my COI here, I'm not a big cystoscope doctor. I think patients are scared of the cystoscopy in the office. And I think for BPH, it's more often than not, it is not really needed. You get, can get to a good diagnosis and indication without the cystoscopy in most cases. Secondly, the fork in the road that Yogi Berra would say, if you get to the fork, you take it. That's not so simple because the fork actually consists of up to three or four or five bifurcations, right? So it's uh, more complex. Um, we should remember and take a look back at 1990s, 1994, the first guidelines. In the first guidelines, there was a statement made to say that prostate imaging is neither uh, recommended nor optional. We, it's basically were thought to be superfluous. Why? Because in the 1990s, we had alpha blockers and five ARIs and we had TERP. That was it. And everybody thought it didn't make any difference whether you give an alpha blocker or a five ARI. And if it didn't work, you did a TERP. It didn't matter what the prostate size was. My God, 25 years later. So we learned that well, you shouldn't give an F5 ARI for a small prostate and you shouldn't give an alpha blocker for a 100 gram prostate or for a prostate with an intravesical lobe. And as far as surgery, we learned that there is a big difference in sizes. So way forward to the modern guidelines, both the AUA and the EAU now recommend prostate imaging. By far the most uh, highly most recommended approach would be an ultrasound. It's the uh, least expensive. And it gives us all the answers in terms of size. And if you do a good sagittal imaging, you get an idea as to the intravesical lobe. When I teach it, when I talk about it, I say, okay, couple of requirements. Um, you have the bladder partially full. You need to have the fluid tissue interface. Otherwise, you can't see the prostate either transabdominally or transrectally. So it's very important to have some urine in the bladder. So don't do it after the flow rate. Do it before the flow rate. So you have a full bladder. You can do it transabdominally or transrectally. Secondly, always document the widest dimension on the cross-sectional uh, AP orientation, measure the height and the widths, and then do a sagittal imaging and measure the lengths. And then determine the rise of the intravesical lobe from the bladder base to the tip of that intravesical lobe, which is usually posteriorly, and recorded in millimeter. So you can come out with four measurements. You can say this prostate is 44 by 47 by 59 millimeters and a seven millimeter IVP or intravesical protrusion. Or you simply say, this is a 59 gram prostate with a 5.7 millimeter intravesical protrusion. That's all the information you need. Now, there are many ultrasound devices that can be adapted to that. In most practices, uh, doctors will schedule this in the ultrasound suite I have gotten away from it. In our practice, we have a mobile ultrasound with a, with a uh, transrectal probe that is on a, uh, on a rolling stand and it can be rolled into the room and I'll just do it as if I do a DRE. I don't even schedule it. I say, okay, I'll do it. And so I'll do the ultrasound, takes me two, three minutes, patient gets dressed. And in that meantime, the pictures are uploaded into Epic and I have them ready to discuss with the patient. Today in our Society of BPH uh, meeting, 
we had a presentation on POCUS. I don't know if you know what POCUS is. POCUS is point of care ultrasound. And so there are five or six companies that's not Hocus Pocus, it's POCUS. Mm -hmm. And so there are five or six companies that make these devices. Uh, there's a device called Butterfly, one is called Clarios, uh, there's another one made by GE. And these devices are handheld, less than a pound in weight, and they're directly linked to an iPhone or an Android. And from the iPhone and Android, most of them upload the images to Epic. So you can carry this in your lab coat on rounds or in your clinic, and you whip out the transducer and to do a transabdominal ultrasound and get your result. That's incredible. And I want to incorporate that in my practice as well. Um, there is even one called Clarios that has an attachment for a transrectal ultrasound. So that's the ultrasound part. Now, if you're lucky, the patient had a high PSA and had already an MRI of the prostate. So then you're golden because then you have the size and the shape precisely. You see the urethra, you know the course the urethra takes, you know what the anatomy is like and what you can and can't do. And sometimes you're lucky that the patient has a high quality CT scan with and without contrast for uh, evaluation of hematuria or for prior stone disease or for a tumor disease or for some kind of follow-up. And so then you use that cross-sectional imaging. But the AUA guideline clearly says don't order an MRI just to get the prostate. So it'll be a little wasteful for money. All right. All right. Fantastic. Uh, and yeah, I must say that, you know, I've used the rolling ultrasound in our clinic and it's, it's pretty user-friendly. You can get the information they need at the point of care, which is clearly nice. Okay, great. So, you know, understood that the size isn't the only fork in the road, but perhaps it gives us a reasonable place to start. And, and maybe the smallest sliver of the pie is going to be large prostates. So maybe let's start out with uh, large prostates. A, how do you kind of define that? So that was a heavy debate uh, amongst the BPH guideline committee members. What is large? And some people, even the peer reviewers of the pilot guideline said, give us guidance, give us numbers, and we refuse. Because some people can resect a 60-gram prostate, some can resect an 80-gram prostate, some can resect a 100-gram prostate, and we don't restrict that. So what is large is a little bit in the eye of the beholder. We, th we suggest that large for most doctors starts at 80 grams, because I really doubt that many of our current trainees can resect 40 or 50 grams of tissue safely. Why would I say 40, 50? Because that's the transition zone tissue you want to resect if you are faced with an 80 or 90 gram prostate, right? That's how much you want to resect. And most of them can. So to me, large starts at 80. So anything above 80, either I'm going to sit there for four hours and do a KTP laser, which is still incomplete, or I do a bipolar turp and I'll do it all myself with no trainee involved to do it quickly. Or I just go to the category large prostate, which starts at 80 and goes to the 100 grams or 200 grams and 300 grams. And in that category, the best choices right now are no longer the open prostatectomy, either retropubic, the old Millen approach or suprapubic, but the best choices are either a robotic-assisted laparoscopic enucleation, which 90% is done transvesical, only 10% is done uh, retropubically opening the capsule. It's just the robot is not really well suited to do it. And you'd have to release the bladder like for a radical prostatectomy. So there's a lot of reasons not to do it. So it's a transvesical robotic-assisted laparoscopic, which works extremely well, sizes 80 to infinity. Now, there are 20, 30, 40, 50 places in the United States where there are real experts who can do a holmium enucleation or a thulium enucleation. And this is the same thing. The sky is the limit. 
they can enucleate prostates from 80 to 150, 200, 300 grams. What happens so is after a robotic enucleation, you put the prostate in a bag and you take the bag out. And if the prostate is 100 grams or 200 grams, it takes the same time. The morselation, as you know, takes longer. So you enucleate transurethrally 250 grams or so, the morselation time takes longer. So maybe this is a detriment for a whole lab in 200 grams, 300 grams, and the benefit of the robotic-assisted enucleation. But then again, there are patients who had prior surgery or have reasons not to do a laparoscopic surgery for whom only the transurethral approach uh, is applicable. We have found in our training program and others have found that if you have a busy training program and our, the residents do a lot of robotic radical prostatectomy, the learning curve for a simple prostatectomy is fast, efficient, and they learn to do it safely. I love, love the idea that our residents leave here and if they are seeing a 200 gram prostate, they know what to do and they have a tool to apply to that patient. So that's sort of the story on the very large prostates, 80 gram and above for me, and uh, for others, maybe 100 or even 120, but for me, it starts at 80. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's really helpful to help kind of start the discussion. And I'll ask you to comment on two things um, as it pertains to bipolar TERP. Why exactly is there a size cutoff if you're not going to be kind of contending with the same fluid disturbances post-TUR syndrome when it comes to a bipolar TERP? So I suppose, theoretically, there is none. Now, that depends a little bit how your setup is. In the 1980s, and, uh, where studies were done on uh, body temperature changes with irrigation. So if you commit yourself to use actually body temperature saline irrigation for a bipolar TERP, I suppose you can keep on going. If you don't do that, then eventually the core temperature decreases the longer you resect with womb temperature normal saline. And eventually this becomes an issue. The patient becomes hypothermic and as you know, coagulation parameters change and uh, the patient doesn't do as well. But if you go with the warming, I presume you can keep going. An argument against that is as follows. If you follow sort of basic geometry and you calculate the inside surface area of a bowl or of a, of a, uh, of a ball, the, the, the prostate ultimately becomes like a bowl, right? The opening is towards the bladder neck and the rest of it is this bowl-shaped uh, configured prostate capsule. The more you resect, the larger the surface of that bowl gets. It's just the inside surface of what a ball would be on the outside. And it becomes harder and harder to stay oriented and to be good about your hemostasis, particularly for trainees. And they pretty soon get lost if the prostate is 60, 80, 90, 100 grams in size. And it's just harder and harder to execute this fully. Secondly, if you have a very large prostate and you resect that, you have to do a lot of coagulation at the end. And you do all this coagulation um, and the patients oftentimes, uh, 10 days, 14 days later, they shed this uh, surface scab tissue and they start coming to the emergency room with fresh bleeding. So I must say that there is practical reasons, teaching reasons, training reasons, and also health consideration reasons uh, that I wouldn't do it. I would not, if I can do a robotic assisted enucleation in 90 minutes time, then I don't want to be there three hours general anesthesia time and do a, you know, not completely the same, but approximating that effect with a bipolar TERP. 
Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And, you know, certainly in the bladder cancer world, I would say that a, a properly done transurethral resection of a bladder tumor is a case that requires a technical skill set and all TURBTs are not the same. And similarly, all TURPs are not the same. And I appreciate you highlighting that. Last comment before we kind of shift on from the large prostate world is you mentioned a four-hour KTP. And I think this is, um, you know, something that's an easy trap to fall in when it comes to doing KTP prostatectomy is that you ablate for some amount of time, regardless of prostate size. You take a look from the viru into the bladder and say, yes, nice, good looking channel. Let's call it a day. And, you know, clearly you're going to be making a return trip here. So can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what your number that you have in your head in terms of energy per gram so that when you look over at your actual KTP machine, You've got so many watts or joules or kilowatts, I can't even remember the unit anymore. And you say, yeah, I think I've done a good job. The, 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 pro the problem is that many uh, surgeons who use the KTP, they basically don't know going in the size of the prostate. And so they are going in sort of blinded and then they start vaporizing and then they saying, okay, now I'm done. And when you look back then with an imaging study, cross-sectional imaging, you realize, well, that was just a very surface layer and he didn't really get to the bulk of the prostate. We see this all the time. Unfortunately, the kilojoules, that's uh, what the actual unit is that we measure, uh, kilojoule energy that is applied is not recorded by the device. So the company, Boston Scientific, doesn't really know how many kilojoules each doctor applies for each treatment. I keep it fairly religiously. And if I go in, uh, for let's say a 50 or 40 gram prostate, let's say, I want to end up with 200 kilojoules. And I would say that uh, 200 uh, kilojoules uh, should ablate um, uh, approximately 20 grams of tissue. And I can do that if I l stay on the laser and I use about a energy of 150 watts or 160 watts, I can do that in approximately 20 minutes. So these are sort of my yardsticks, the time that the laser is on, and not that I'm looking around or the trainee is looking around, but the time the laser is on, um, the energy that I use, which ranges from 80 to 180. And so I shoot 450 as my top, 160 as my top power setting. And then the total energy uh, would be, you know, uh, 10 kilojoules equating about a gram of tissue. That also happens to be a gram of tissue ablated by that laser per minute if you're efficient and if you are, know how to do it, you know. If you're only in there and you turn the laser on and you are too far away, you don't create bubbles, you don't ablate the tissue, then all bets are off. I don't know how much tissue is ablated, maybe very little. So a well-trained, uh, well-experienced KTP laser resectionist can do a gram a minute um, and a 40 gram prostate, 200 kilojoules would be appropriate. I would probably do 300 kilojoules for a 60 gram prostate. Okay, fantastic. So I'll maybe just try to briefly summarize. Large prostates, we're looking at um, bipolar TERP, can be technically challenging, comes with fluid and temperature changes, uh, potential bleeding risks that are considerations. Um, KTP prostatectomy, I think you need to be committed for the, for the long haul to really get a good job and um, serve the patient well. Then you've got uh, simple prostatectomy, uh, probably most frequently done via a minimally invasive approach with the benefit of avoiding an enucleation step. And of course, conversely, it is a 
transabdominal surgery. And then lastly, HOLEP, minimally invasive option, uh, technically challenging, limited to certain areas of expertise. And then of course, the morselation step. So that's, um, that's really helpful. I think just to kind of unpackage how to think about those and maybe before we jump into more average size prostates and, uh, symptom patient preference, anatomical considerations, I would ask you suprapubic tube at the time of surgery in patients with attention. Is that something you do pretty reflexively? Uh, if you could just offer a, uh, thought on that. Yeah, that's a unresolved issue in research and lots and BPH and, uh, uh, just as, and just as there is no answer for the unactive detrusor, the detrusor hypocontractility, there is really unclear indications for it. So I use a suprapubic tube uh, in patients where I suspicion that there will be a problem post-op with the resumption of normal urination and avoiding efficiency of greater than 50%. How do I do that? Well, I look at, the, I get my idea, my gestalt from the phenotype. Is the patient young? Is the patient old? If he is already fairly old, does he have a high retention volume? Is the voiding efficiency only 20-30%? What does the bladder look like on ultrasound or on the MRI? Is it already heavily tuberculated? Does he have diverticular? Is there evidence for long-standing obstruction? All of this would lead me to say, well, I put an SP tube in as a bladder retraining tool and let the patients come to a point where maybe his voiding efficiency improves to 70 or 80 percent and then take the tube out. Uh, every single factor changes it a little bit. Patient has a lower retention volume and is younger. I would be less likely, less prone to do it. If I look inside and the bladder wall looks good and there is not too much in the way of tuberculation, um, I would be less inclined to do it. If I look in during the surgery and I realize the prostate really is visually obstructing and the lateral lobes are really compressing the urethra, Oddly enough, I would be less likely to put an SP tube in because I'm thinking, well, this patient I can convert from a high retention volume to a low retention volume just by unobstructing him. The biggest risk is clearly an octogenarian with a high retention volume and a modest sized prostate. And when you look in, you see this heavy tuberculation with these, uh, these fibrous strands run through like sails and diverticular everywhere. And you realize the prostate isn't even that big. Then you know you're in trouble. And that patient gets an SP tube because to convert that patient to a normal urination would be very difficult. Okay, fantastic. So now we're moving away from the large prostates, the Texas-sized prostates, more to average and smaller prostates. And, um, you know, perhaps just to give the next layer of options some categorization. So clearly... So clearly for the average size prostate, there is a plethora of things that can be done. Uh, both the resume and the Eurolift are recommended by the AUA guidelines uh, between 30 and 80 grams. This is, was done in, during the studies. This was the size range that was tested. Uh, the uh, uh, Teleflex or Neotract company has done also a study in patients up to 100 grams and the FDA approved the Eurolift, but I personally don't like to use it above 80 grams. I think I stick with the 30 to 80 grams. Uh, in that same category is, however, also Holep and Thulep. In the same category is the KTP laser. In the same category is the, uh, uh, the transurethral resection or even transurethral vaporization with uh, uh, electrocautery. Uh, so so maybe I'll, I'll interrupt you for just a moment, Klaus, and ask you, among all of these options, which are pretty much everything's available, 
how does the median lobe presence or absence right to factor so, decision? So, um, and I think this is, you know, fortunately an insight that has made finally its way into the guidelines, both the EAU and to some degree the AUA guidelines, the recognition that the intravesical lobe plays a major role. Um, the, starting with the least invasive, the resume treatment has clearly shown that if you put the needle in the median lobe, if it's present, you get a better improvement than if there's a median lobe and you don't put the needle in. So putting the needle in, injecting the steam, ablating that median lobe gets you a better improvement than if you leave it alone. So the resume works out okay for the median lobe. You likely have a longer catheterization time, but it in the end works out. The Eurolift is approved because there is a study that was done called the MetLift study, where they took basically a Eurolift device and sort of stapled that median lobe to the side. There's a risk in exposing that wire. There's a risk in maybe having a material exposed to the urine and forming stones. And there's a risk it doesn't work if you don't do it a lot. So I don't like to do it because I think there are other treatments available for it, but it is technically approved for it. Um, the KTP or green light laser is a bit odd because it shoots down uh, in a 70 degree forward. And so if you vaporize over the median lobe, eventually you get through it and then you hit the trigone. And that's just something I don't like to do or teach the residents because when you hit the trigone, you can easily hit the ureteral orifice and then you coagulate it. And it's just a question, do you put a stent up and how long and what are you going to do about it? So substantial median lobe, I don't like the KTP all that much, I have to admit. So for a substantial intervesical lobe, I, I like preferentially to do a TURP um, because I can very elegantly lop that median lobe off without jeopardizing the trigone, the UOs, uh, taking it flush off the bladder neck. And I think that's the most elegant way of going about it. If people want to stay minimally invasive, they can do the resume. And if people have access to it, they can use the aquablation. But the aquablation has its own limitation. In many cases, after one passage of the water pressure, uh, water pick ablation, the lowermost component of that intervesical lobe, uh, which basically gets uh, in, uh, protrudes into the bladder like a tongue, still is there. It's not completely gone, and you have to go in afterwards and take a loop and resect it, uh, at least that last bit of it, because the aquablation often doesn't completely eliminate it. And that has to do with the fact that the water pressure uh, makes it bounce a little bit. And as it bounces, uh, it doesn't get ablated. It just evades the pressure. That's the best way of putting it. Okay. So big, big decision point, the intravesical lobe, no medical therapy. Please don't give medical therapy for a substantial intravesical lobe ever. Doesn't work. And it's just a waste of time and money. Uh, choose your weapon carefully. If you are, have access to not much, then use your turp loop. It's the best tool yet. If you have it and you're really good at it, you can use the green light laser. You certainly can use the whole app, the aquablation, but caveat, you may have to resect at the end of that aquablation, still that tissue. And if you have the resume, you can do it and stick the needle in and use the Eurolift only if you're really, really good at that, because it's a technically difficult move to make. Okay. So in kind of summary though, there isn't any contraindication to any of the technologies that are available. Is that fair? 
technically well, speaking. Uh, the FDA has approved the Eurolift for a middle, median low um, based on data the company submitted. The AUA guidelines does not recommend it. So you can take your cue from that. The MedLift study was not a sham control trial, a small cohort of patients. And um, so done by a few expert surgeons. So that's the reason for that. I, I just think that a practicing urologist should, uh, when he sees that sort of thing, he should go what works the best, you know, and uh, at the first go round. And to me, it seems like if you have that, uh, ablating it with the loop is nearly ideal because you can put the loop under it, you can lift it up, you can then resect it and it's done safely, just like you uh, would, uh, you know, a bladder tumor that looks like one of those um you know, trees that grows into the bladder where you go with a loop under and hook it and you know you're not got to go down to the stem. You know, the same here. You got to go down to the bladder neck where the median, median lobe originates from. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. So median lobe, um, I think you've kind of given us some guidance that, that TERP still kind of carries the day as the gold standard in this clinical scenario. And one just momentary comment on, is there even a role for monopolar TERP if you have both options available? Um, so I, I am probably both old and old school. So I actually like to do uh, monopolar TERPs and I post my TERPs very specifically and very diff in a differentiated manner for monopolar and bipolar. I post uh, if the prostate size, and I know the prostate size, if it's 40 grams or 50 grams or less, I post it as a monopolar. There's several reasons for it. First of all, some of our trainees uh, don't go into a hospital where the bipolar is immediately available. It's not everywhere available. Uh, secondly, uh, the bipolar resectoscope loop is $500. The monopolar is $150. So it's a big price difference. Thirdly, and Olympus and Storz will hate me for saying it, the monopolar loop, when you look at it, is much thinner. It's just like a really thin wire. And the anatomical excavation of the prostate cavity can be done more elegantly and more precisely uh, than with the bipolar loop. There's no question in my mind, but that might also be because I trained for decades on the monopolar. So I still use it and I still see there's a role in it. I teach the residents, if you do a monopolar, I don't care if it's 10 minutes or an hour, every time get a BMP at the end, check your sodium because uh, if you do it, you know it. And if you don't do it, you never know what happens. So fortunately, in smaller glands, the, the sodium changes are very minimal and uh, it's pretty safe. Okay, fantastic. So if I may, you know, for smaller glands, of course, there's going to be some considerations and perhaps I would ask for you to speak a little bit about transurethral incision of the prostate and even a little bit more broadly on um, options that are going to be prioritized when preservation of anterograde ejaculation is a priority. So it used to be said that ejaculation has to do a lot with the bladder neck. And every time you mess with the bladder neck, you get an ejaculation or retrohead ejaculation. Um, and then uh, there is a school of thought that there's the ejaculation, the anagrade ejaculation hinges on the apical tissue that is right in front of the viral montanum. So currently, most people think that it's just the uh, apical tissue that preserves the ejaculation. Now, just in our meeting this morning, I raised this question because it is known that the incision of the bladder neck actually causes 30 to 50% retrograde ejaculation, even if you don't come close to the Vero Montanum. So I'm old school there. I think the bladder neck must play a role in it, perhaps not the only role. 
So when patients come and they are really, really interested in ejaculation function, fortunately, we have excellent studies that use the MSHQ ejaculation questionnaire, and they with absolute 100% certainty guide you. So the Eurolift treatment has no impairment of ejaculation, period, in, all, in no patient that is reported. The resume treatment has it maybe in 5%, maybe in a little bit more, but not more than 10% of patient ejaculation impairment. The incision of the bladder neck, either at the 6 o'clock or 4 and 8 o'clock, uh, up to 30 or 50% of patients have retrograde ejaculation. The aquablation, due to the fact that the water jet is stopped just shy of the apical tissue, has an ejaculation preservation that is surprisingly high, 95%. So the vast majority of aquablation treatment enjoy normal ejaculation if you turn this device on so that uh, with the so-called butterfly cut, this hood of tissue in front of the Vero Montanum is preserved. So if a man comes in and says ejaculation trumps, then I look at him and say, okay, let me check your prostate size. If the prostate size is 30, 40, 50 grams. I said, let's try a Eurolift. Um, if it's a really small prostate, I say, well, you can try a Eurolift. We can also try an incision and I'm not carrying it all the way to the Vero. We can see how that works. If it's a larger prostate, I say, well, let's do the aquablation treatment because that has your best chances of preserving anagrade ejaculation. Now, full stop. There's a lot of surgeons who claim they can preserve ejaculation to 70, 80, 90% even during a TERP, during a green light laser, during a whole lab, as long as they preserve this hood of tissue in front of the viral montanum. Well, the problem is that that doesn't seem to be easy to duplicate by others. A, B, the very principle of the whole lab operation is to make an incision in the mucosa at the apical tissue. So that tissue by definition has to go as part of the package. So I'm really unclear on that. And most of these studies are single center, single investigator. So I'm less enthusiastic about this idea of leaving a little tissue behind uh, close to the Vero Montanum. And I secondarily don't believe you achieve the same efficacy necessarily. So ejaculation preservation, Eurolift tops, resume second for the smaller glands, aquablation for the larger glands. And then comes all this artistry and the individual people who can do it, presumably, uh, with good success, even when they do a standard TERP. That's really nice. I think practical, implementable information, Klaus. Thank you for that. So, you know, we're approaching an hour and there's so much that we could unpack, technical details and so forth. I wanted to get your thoughts and suggestions on what to do with medical management of BPH meds finasteride, Flomax, and so forth after you've done your outlet procedure? How do you typically manage that? So I follow up with my patients usually at one month or shy of one month. I have everybody come in. I want to make sure the urine is clear, that they're urining okay, that there is no issue, that they don't have suddenly a urethral stricture or meatal stenosis or some other concerns and issues. And at that visit, I make sure they stop any and all medication and I turn them off in Epic. Uh, which is very important because that way I can track whether I are off or not. Um, I really think a surgery should obviate the need for any medical treatment, period, full stop. Now, having said that, there is lots and lots of patients who take medications either throughout their post-operative period or they resume it afterwards again. 
And the number one medication following surgery are anticholinergics and beta-3 adrenergics because we don't always eliminate with a surgery the storage symptoms, right? The storage symptoms persist, patient goes back on anticholinergics. Is that our mistake? Is that our problem? Maybe. Maybe it means we came too late. Maybe we came at a time point when the bladder already is so irritable that these storage symptoms dominate and that the patient doesn't make a full recovery in respect to the storage symptoms. So I do that too. I have to because patients come in and say, docs are great. The flow is great. Everything is wonderful. I still have this urgency. I still get up at night. And uh, is there anything I can do? And then I say, okay, time limit. We'll take it for three months. I'll see you back in three months. And we'll see how you do. Anticholinergics or beta-3 adrenergics. Good. Then comes another group of patients, not in my practice, I hope, but uh, there's another group of patients where they say, yeah, it's not so great. The flow is still kind of weak. Well, uh, that's probably the bladder muscle and the patient didn't have invasive urodynamics, so you don't know how good the bladder muscle is. So what do doctors do? They give an alpha blocker. Now, that's the limit for me. If I trim out the prostate and the bladder neck, why should I think that uh, alpha adrenergic receptor blockade of the smooth muscle at the bladder neck plays any role? I don't. And since we know the alpha blocker treatment doesn't affect the detrusor muscle, and we have essentially no treatment that affects the detrusor muscle, I draw the line. I tell the patient, look, it's just a waste of money and time and effort, and it's just make-believe. An alpha blocker can't have a meaningful role after a well-executed TURP or KTP or whole lab or aquablation. So there's no such thing. Good. Next, five ARIs. Yeah, there are some patients whose genes make their prostate grow back. I, I don't, I can't understand it. But so you measure your baseline PSA after a TURP or an aquablation or a RASP, and it's low, and then it goes back up and you say, what is going on? And if it's not cancer, it's BPH tissue. So I have patients that are put on a 5-ARI and, okay, full, full disclosure, I put him on like a dutasteroid a week, every Sunday after church, I say. Why? Because I know that that prevents the regrowth. And it's cheap, it induces less side effects, and the patient feels he takes an active part in the regimen. So I have a lot of patients um, who take a single dutasteroid every Sunday morning because I don't want their prostate to grow back. And I've seen they can do it, either genetically predisposed or by some other mechanism. So as you can see, for every drug that can be given before or after a surgery, I have a specific plan of action, if you will. Yeah, that's that's really nice. And you kind of touched upon this, and um, I think this would be generally considered standard practice if you've allowed significant time after the outlet procedure and have persistent refractory symptoms, it's probably a good idea to get invasive urodynamics plus or minus cystoscopy to evaluate for bladder neck contracture, other anatomic issues and problems. And then of course, um, the function of the bladder and character of the outlet as well. Yeah. Is that I, I cannot overemphasize that, you know, I'm not a person that sends every patient to urodynamics, but if you fail to improve the flow rate and the patient has still a crummy flow rate, the first question is not necessarily will an alpha blocker have the first question should probably be provided you did the surgery. Well, does this mean this patient's bladder is just done for? You know, does it generate any pressure? And at that moment, you can assess that with a urodynamic study. So, of course, you know, again, there's so many things that we could talk about. One clinical scenario that I think we encounter not infrequently that's of particular interest to me as an oncologist 
patients with fairly significant lower urinary tract symptoms requiring or requesting uh, an outlet procedure who are ultimately going to receive radiation for prostate cancer? Any, uh, any specific considerations in that type of patient? So if that's the case, and if that's the clinical scenario, I would say um, that in that patient, I would do not a KTP laser. I would do the cleanest DURP or a whole lab because what I want to achieve is a clean surface that heals and epithelializes well and creates a symmetrical, nice biconcave cavity so that the radiation physicist can do a proper planning and that the radiation is less likely to induce damage. If you give the radiation in a poorly healing field of necrotic, partially coagulated tissue, you probably induce a lot more symptoms than otherwise. So my number one goal is to go with a treatment that I know I can create a nice symmetrical cavity. B, I leave behind the best chance for an epithelialization and healing in the shortest period of time. Um, and I guess uh, another consideration is I wouldn't use aquablation or KTP because I honestly feel like since a patient has cancer, it gives an opportunity to analyze the tissue. All right, Klaus. Well, um, you know, I really thank you again for your insightful comments on surgical management of BPH. And, um, you know, if I may take a stab at putting some, some words in your mouth for a large prostate um, enucleation such as HOLEP or simple prostatectomy, preferably minimally invasive, would, would be the preferred options. Average size prostates, lots to consider. All options are technically available, but it would seem if you have a median lobe that you would perhaps favor TERP or enucleation procedures, um, though the others may be appropriate perhaps in slightly more infirm patients or patients that have more of a frailty index or on blood thinners. And then uh, in this group, as well as a small group prostates, when you're factoring in the prioritization of uh, integrate ejaculation preservation, there are some considerations where the urolift procedure would be a good option. Resume and aquablation would be good options. Incision of the prostate slash bladder neck would be a good option. Is that a fair practical take-home summary? Yeah, I think that is a fair practical take-home summary. Uh, I also am in good standing with the AUA guidelines that come out uh, at the AUA in Las Vegas this year. Uh, they are fully updated for both surgical and medical, and they have an algorithm that encompasses both. And uh, what you just paraphrased is pretty much also sort of the tenor of the guidelines. The guidelines differ a little bit from the FDA. People are always worried, why is the FDA saying this and why is the AUA saying that? You have to always remember the AUA guidelines make recommendation for the general practitioner, the best interest of their patient. The FDA uh, takes into consideration just basically the study material submitted by a company. So there's oftentimes a little bit discrepancy there and, and I don't mind that at all. I think that's our professional prerogative to make a differentiated judgments on these treatments. And what you just said is sort of my belief system. All right, Klaus. Well, thank you again for, for your time. And, you know, my wheels are already spinning about perhaps a surgical tips and tricks lecture series to have excellent outcomes, get patients safely through the whole experience. So I thank you and uh, thank you for listenership, for, for tuning in. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show.